This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. We bring you the open conversation where we talk about all things that matter. This morning, uh, my guest is Advocate uh, Stephen Budlender, uh, Senior Counsel. He's with uh, the Practicing Senior uh, practicing senior Counsel and member of the Pan-African Bar Association of South Africa, uh, PABASA. And we are going to talk all things about the law, the judiciary. Uh, of course, he also is a man of cricket, uh, an interesting detour. So we'll also touch on that. Advocate Badlander, a good morning to you and welcome to Power Talk. Good morning, Lakona. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for making time for us. In fact, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did the law find you? Then I thought, no, man, the law was always in the house with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, my father likes to tell a story that uh, when I was about four years old, he mm. asked me what I was going to be. And I said I was either going to be a lawyer or a fireman. And when he said, well, which do you think? I said, a lawyer. And he said, why? Thinking I would speak about justice and all the rest. Yeah. And I said, because firemen have to work very hard. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> and you are not up for, and, and I'm sure you saved yourself. I mean, if we think of the blazes in Cape Town that you have Indeed. to work Indeed. around the clock trying to put them out. Now, these days, it's parliament, it's other, you know, important state institutions. I'm sure you look at that and say, maybe I made the right career choice. Look, I think what's clear is I'm a better lawyer than I would have been a fireman. So I think it was the right call. <laughs> no, that's a good starting point. But perhaps let's just have this conversation in terms of, you know, then you grow up and you're not a four-year-old, but uh, you are in this house. You see, you know, the, the, the old bud lender taking up the cases that he's taking. Do, do you get curious and agitated towards a direction of law? You know, I think it was two things. Um, I think my father never pushed me into law, but of course, living in that house and, and he and I are very close, it exposed me to two things. Firstly, was one was how interesting the law can be and mm-hmm. how intellectual. And I, I really do find the law fascinating. Um, and, and it exposed me to that. But the second is that the law can really, when used properly, achieve change for people. Mm. Because, you know, my dad was at the Legal Resources Center as I was growing up. And sometimes over weekends he would have consultations and we would go uh, and be taken to his offices. And I would meet people, people from often poor communities, people who were really struggling against apartheid Mm. and and, and everything that was involved. And... uh, I got exposed to them. And then, of course, on the way home in the car, you say, well, what's that case about? No, that's about these people who are being forcibly evicted. What's that case about? No, this is a person who can't work because of uh, the pass system or or influx control or whatever. And it was was an eye-opener. And you realize Mm. that if if good people use the law and if they use it the way it is intended, then even under the apartheid system, it can make a difference. Uh, And of course, by the time I got to university, uh, apartheid um, uh, was over and we were in a new constitutional order Mm. and that just increased the possibilities. So yes, it's unquestionable. 
I, although I wasn't forced into it, it created the space for me to see what law can do and, and how much I loved it. Absolutely. Uh, and and that's, that's what took me into it. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the Legal Resources Center. A um, lot of activists, when they talk, uh, bit, it's about, you know, the late George Bezos um, or uh, people who went on to be judges like Chris Nicholson, um, who really were, uh, you know, on the side of people, the angers of this world, yeah. uh, who, who, were, who were fighting in the struggle, making sure that their services are as accessible to freedom fighters as possible. One of the things that has come up a lot in this week, uh, Stephen, is the idea of access to justice. I wonder, as you see it as different advocates, and I think this might have been also at the formation of Pabasa, by the way, um, as you see it and interrogate how you practice your trade and your craft today, how accessible are you to those indigent citizens, to those, you know, uh, downtrodden people whose cases really uh, are uh, standing between them and their livelihoods in certain instances and at times between them and their lives if you look at the questions of the land and so on uh, mm. do you have those reflective moments where you look at the generation of you know uh, your father advocate Jeff uh, Budlender and uh, your generation and what you are doing as colleagues yes of course I think the reality is and we have to be frank that uh, not only poor people can't afford lawyers. Uh, in fact, ordinary middle-class citizens can't afford. I, I lawyers. can't afford you, by the no, way. I can just only afford sure. an interview with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I have a colleague who made the point, uh, uh, Advocate Muzi Sikakani, who, who, who yep. made the point when Babasa was formed. He said, "I can't afford my own services. I, Muzi, can't afford my own services," and mm. that's true. Um, because the, 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 the rates that lawyers charge have skyrocketed, and the truth is that they are unaffordable to even ordinary people with uh, solid income and, 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 and solid jobs. And for, for poor people, it's utterly unaffordable. And, and that's a huge problem. I, 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 don't, I don't think uh, that uh, many years ago, I think it was better, but not much better. Uh, and when you speak about the the George Bezos, Arthur Chaskelsons, Chris Nicholsons, of course they were able to make their services available only because the LRC was funded mm. and was operating for free. Mm. So it's a huge problem and, and it's one of the reasons that I really believe that there need to be mandatory pro bono requirements across all levels of law. Um, and, and, and they need to be serious because the idea that uh, the idea that one can spend most of the year doing nothing but extraordinarily well-paid work and then just occasionally do a little bit of pro bono work here or there mm. is a problem for me. And I, I think all lawyers really need to, to commit to making themselves available. And there are entities like probono.org and some of the law firms have got pro bono uh, offices which can channel the work to people if the right systems are put in place. But it depends on attorneys and advocates truly committing mm. to doing uh, significant volumes of work pro bono uh, and significant volumes uh, of work uh, on contingency if needs be. Because under the current system, it's perfectly possible to say, well, I'll take your case and I'll sue the government uh, in order to get you a house. And if we yeah. succeed, then at the end of the day, I'll get costs. So it's, it's not that one has to do it for nothing. There might be costs at the end of the day. You just but defer the conversation exactly. to a later stage. But you've got to be prepared to do it knowing that you're not going to get paid today, you're not going to get paid tomorrow, you might only get paid in three or four years' time if it's a big case, once it's made its way up through the court system. But those are the cases that change people's lives. Mm. And uh, I was brought up to see that law was a way to change people's lives. It was not a way to make money. Uh, and and um, it's something that I try and remind myself 
um, and that I know a number of my colleagues at Pabasa are, are adamant about, um, and it was one of the one of the instincts uh, that led to the formation of Pabasa uh, when it was formed. And and there are other organisations who do the same: NGOs, the LRC, the Legal Resource, uh, the LHR, and various others. But it really is imperative if the law is going to mean something, because otherwise the people who need it most can't get access to proper lawyers. Absolutely. And I was just uh, speaking to Advocate Prince Mafu earlier uh, this morning, and he spoke about an idea that, you know, uh, that pro bono work definitely needs to be done, has to be monitored. But he also spoke about incentives. What would incentives look like, you know, uh, for advocates, for attorneys? Because you'd still have to be on a brief, right, by a whole network of people, attorneys, briefing, advocates. Uh, What would incentives look like, uh, Advocate Badlender, especially in instances where you might not win with costs, but uh, you might succeed in influencing jurisprudence to a particular direction, even if you have not won, but the interpretation of certain things improves and then might, you know, improve the lot of the people as the law develops. You see, I think what's important is uh, you're right about incentives and, and, and there's a problem with how many role players are needed. But if everybody contributes, if the attorneys are prepared to act pro bono and the advocates are prepared to act pro bono, then there's no reason that people shouldn't be able to, 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 to get proper legal representation. But, but you make a, another point which is important. Mm. The law operates effectively in two ways. Uh, one way is where there is some startling development in our law. So there is a case where, uh, which challenges the law to allow gay marriage, or there is a case which recognizes the right of uh, women in customary marriages to inherit, or the right of women in customary marriages to claim certain rights. Those are path-breaking developments, and they can affect many, many people, or a case where government is directed to provide uh, nevirapine to, 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 to HIV-positive yeah. people, and they're critical. But the second kind of case is just as critical. It's the person who's not going to make any jurisprudence. The case is not going to make their way into the law reports. But it's the woman who needs a protection order against her husband or the uh, man who needs to resist an eviction by someone who's Mm. trying to force him out of his house or someone who just needs to compel government to issue him with a refugee document or a citizenship document, which he's entitled to under the law, but which government hasn't done. Mm. Those cases don't make the law reports, they don't make the newspapers, but they make a difference in people's lives. And both of those cases need to happen if the law is to have an effect, uh, to make an effective difference in people's lives. My guest is Advocate Stephen Budlender, and we're just talking about the law and, uh, you know, the nitty gritties of it. We are really getting uh, close to some very uh, interesting issues to uh, tackle this morning. I will take your calls if you have a question or comment for him on 0861-987-000. Now, Stephen, let's deal with uh, something else that I often think uh, can be misunderstood, and it's how you as advocates get briefed. Uh, You've appeared, uh, you know, against the National Assembly in some matters. You are appearing for the National Assembly in another matter. I think it's awaiting judgment in the Concord. Um, if not, judgment was meant to come out today. Did it come out, actually? It, it, in, fact, it in fact, did come At out. 10 o'clock, today. right? It, it, it came out and uh, it, uh, it was the case about uh, the challenge by the public protector to the rules regarding uh, impeachment yes. of Chapter 9 institutions. And it was uh, a case in which she succeeded in one of her challenges about the right to legal representation. Mm-hmm. And the court held unanimously that she was entitled to that. But she failed in another more overarching challenge, which was to say that uh, the whole set of rules was unconstitutional 
and in saying that there should be no judge involved. So it's, it's a case which allows the process to go on uh, against her, but with legal representation, which is one of the things she was arguing for. Does it by any means then, I'm, I'm sorry now to spring this up on you because, no, no, no. I mean, the judgment has come out while I'm on air. I'm sure you've perused it. Um, yes. uh, does, it, it that, does it then mean, you know, the, 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 the matter where the panel of judges, I think it was Nkabinde uh, uh, was there, yes. Nzabeza advocate, uh, yes. C was there. Does it undo that process? or that is still watertight and the matter now then goes back to the National Assembly? No, it's, ve- it's very clear that uh, what has been done up until this point is lawful and so the process can continue from this point on. The High Court would have started the process again yeah. because it said the involvement of yes. a judge was unconstitutional. Yes. The Con Court has ruled unanimously that the involvement of a judge was permissible uh, and of course because the proceedings in the National Assembly Committee have not yet begun she will, uh, Advocate Mkabani will be able to get uh, legal representation yeah. going forward. So it very much keeps the process on track which is what both the National Assembly and the Democratic Alliance who, who was my client in this case had, had argued for. Well I, I, su- I suppose congratulations are in order because you, <laughs> you win some you lose some. <laughs> you, you, you do and, and you win some and you lose some for some clients. I mean it's yeah. an interesting point you make but uh, of course the way advocates work is that the client goes to the attorney and the attorney briefs you. And, and, and although it's a, it's a much longer discussion, you, you have an ethical duty to, mm. to take the brief. You can't decline the brief on the basis that you don't like the client. And you can't decline the brief on the basis that you think the case is, is, is not going to win. That's, that's known as the cab rank rule. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so you have to take the Perhaps case. just explain that, uh, Stephen, because sure. that rule, uh, you know, uh, then there are moments but exceptional cases where you may be in a position to decline. What, what, what considerations would actually make you decline a case? So, so, so the broad rule is that if you are available to deal with the matter, in other words, if you've got space in your diary and capacity Mm. to deal with it, and if it's a matter that falls within your area of expertise, then you are duty-bound to take the brief, ethically bound to take the brief, irrespective of whether you like the client and irrespective of whether you uh, particularly want to do this case. Mm. And the, the principle underlying that is the idea that everyone should be entitled to legal representation and that if you don't have such an ethical rule, then unpopular people, people who are against the tide of public opinion, are unlikely to get proper legal representation because lawyers will be judged for taking their cases and, and will be unable to do so. And, and, and that brings into disrepute the criminal and civil justice system mm. because if you don't have a lawyer, you can't get properly represented. And so the, the principle, and it, it stems from England originally, is the, is the idea that... Um, uh, everyone is entitled to representation. Of course, the caveat is if you can pay for it, which is part of the problem, but leave yeah. that aside for a moment. Everyone who, who can pay for it is entitled to legal representation uh, and that lawyers shouldn't decline on the basis that they don't like the client. And so the idea is to try to stop associating lawyers with their clients mm, uh, mm. So in, or, in order to do that. It is true to say that in more recent years there has been a debate an ongoing one about yeah. the cab rank rule and does it need to be revisited and does it create an excuse and an ability for people to take on cases um, and, and frustrate the system. But that's a much longer debate. But the core principle that everyone should be entitled to a legal representation, no matter how unpopular their cause, mm. and that lawyers are not judges, they are lawyers 
It's for the judges to make the call as to whether someone's behaving unlawfully. It's not for the lawyers to make the call and say, I don't like that case because I don't like the way you behaved or I don't like what you said. That principle seems to me to be a critically important one. Whether it's been abused or not is a different debate, but that principle seems to me important. But the other thing about that principle, Lukona, and and it's one that you Mm. touched on, is it's that principle that allows people to act for different parties on different sides. Yes. And you, 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 you gave that example. In this case that we've just done, uh, I was acting, in fact, for the Democratic Alliance, mm. uh, uh, albeit on the side of the Speaker. Yes. Uh, in but in 2017, case, in actual fact, a case that I do want to quote something from it, uh, the Section yes. 89, very, very important case where we saw so many judgments being written, either concurring yes. in minority or majority. Uh, you were also uh, on the side of the other parties, the EFF, the Congress of the People, uh, the UDM, acting against the National Assembly, actually, in yes, that so, matter. So, I mean, I think that's the point. In that case, I was Dalian Porfu's uh, well, in one case, I was for the DA. In the other case, I was Dalian Popu's junior for mm. the UDM. Sometimes I act for the speaker, like in the, in the, Schlope, yeah. uh, in the, in the matter about Judge President Schlope that's coming to court next month. Yeah. Sometimes I act against the speaker. And although it's not as well known, <laughs> I frequently act against the Democratic Alliance, particularly for the Electoral Commission. Be- because uh, I wanted uh, to ask you, Stephen, to say, I mean, you, you've done a few matters for the DA. Does that make them the friends of the advocate or their matters just simply happen to land with you? It makes me a frequent, uh, it, makes, <laughs> it makes them a frequent client of mine, but that's all. And, and that's the reason I'm making the point. Yeah, people absolutely. People see me arguing for the DA in one case or another, and they say, oh, he's the DA advocate. Yeah. But of course, that's not true and, and and that's the point i'm making in the concord last year about the elections case there was a bitter battle between the electoral commission and the da as you will recall about whether the elections should be postponed and i was one of the two lead advocates for the electoral commission in an earlier case about whether the da had, had breached the electoral act by saying things about patricia de again i was for the electoral commission against the da and and i think that's a good thing because i think what that says is that advocates are not associated with their clients in that way. They are there to present legal arguments fiercely, passionately, and to the best of their ability, but they are not there to be the head of their client's party or to be Mm. a director of their client or anything of that sort. You are there to do your job. Um, And I think that's a good thing. And and it's something that we should welcome. And we should be very, very careful about saying about a particular advocate, well, he's an EFF advocate, he's a DA advocate, he's this, and therefore we're going to disregard or or discredit him on that basis because I think we we start running into quite dangerous and, and, and murky waters. Absolutely. The labeling effect. My guest is advocate Stephen Budlender. Uh, there he's practicing, of course, as senior counsel and member of the Pan-African Bar Association of South Africa. 0861-987-000 is the dial for you uh, to join in on this uh, conversation. Now, of course, uh, advocate, uh, there are a number of other, you know, uh, contentious issues, and some of those include the briefing patterns. A lot has been said about this. Can you just touch a little as to how far the needle is moving on this, and maybe what may have also led to Pabasa, you know, forming itself outside the other, you know, bars in Gauteng, especially? Yes, sure. I mean, I think those are two issues that are are of critical importance. And the answer is that the briefing patterns have begun to move, but they haven't begun to move nearly fast enough. And I know that in the JSC interviews of uh, chief justice candidates, uh, there has been a lot of discussion around that with some of the candidates. And and I saw yesterday, in fact, uh, Judge President Mlambo 
making the point that he had at one point called Standard Bank into his office to say, uh, because he knew the CEO of Standard Bank, to say, look, just explain to me what it means. Why is it that when I see a Standard Bank matter, the attorney is invariably a white attorney and the counsel is invariably a white, a white man? And, and what does this say about the way you view black, uh, black, uh, black um, practitioners? And he, he made the point quite clearly that it wasn't only Standard Bank that was the problem. That was just the one mm-hmm. he happened to speak to. And I, I think really what it is is that all institutions uh, across society, and that includes uh, corporations, the banks, uh, it includes the state, who is sometimes uh, uh, itself greatly to blame, need to take responsibility for ensuring that where counsel are briefed, uh, they do not fall into the traditional patterns, uh, which have been entrenched historically for, for, for any number of years, of briefing only white attorneys, white counsel, and particularly white men because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. White men get the most briefs, and so white men gain the most experience, and so when it comes time to go to the bench and you're looking for someone who's got commercial experience, everyone says, well, it's only the white men who can act as the commercial judges or the tax judges, Mm. because those are the white men who've done so. And of of course that's begun to shift, and of course there are some uh, vastly experienced uh, uh, black commercial lawyers, but on the whole, one does still see that particularly in the commercial space, those briefs tend to go to white advocates and white male advocates in particular, and black advocates uh, disproportionately get sent the road accident fund work and other kinds of work, and that's one of the reasons why when the road accident fund uh, went through its difficulties last year and legal work dried up, that affected black advocates disproportionately. So to answer your question, briefing patterns is a huge problem. Um, and it still needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed not just for the sake of the black advocates involved, but also for the sake of ensuring that when people go to the bench, they've had the necessary experience. Fantastic. And, and to, to deal with your second question, that let, let, indeed... let's take a pause there, uh, Stephen. I see my news team is ready to give us the latest in news headlines. After that, I'll let you, you know, uh, deal with that second portion of it, uh, the Pabasa Thanks. effect and how it came about. And uh, yeah, I've got Mudibe as well on the line, uh, wanting to put a question to you. Zero eight six one nine eight seven triple zero people of power senior council uh, we are in a free uh, dialogue consultation i promise you i don't have money to pay his hourly fee power talk with lukona call lukona on zero eight six one nine eight seven triple zero yes indeed uh, 24 minutes to the hour 11 o'clock here on power talk as we build up to the end open conversation with advocate Stephen Budlander as we learn more about you know the inner workings of the processes to brief the law and all of that uh, we talked to him uh, Stephen I was going to give you a chance to just uh, delve into the second part of that question which was really about the Pan-African Bar Association of South Africa uh, its birth was you know heralded as a new era in uh, in in the in the council circles Yes, so thank, thanks, Lukona. Pabasa was the, the first bar association formed under the uh, first new bar association formed under the Legal Practice Act, mm. uh, uh, which was recently enacted. But one of the things about Pabasa is that it is unapologetically black-led and always will be majority black advocates. Uh, that is what it says in its constitution, and it's got a particular emphasis on, on, on race and gender in the constitution. And I think the thing about Pabasa, and, and, and it, it, it fits with um, my involvement in the formation of the mm. uh, Victorian Tange group uh, at the Johannesburg Bar, is I think it's very important that institutions in this country are actually black-led and black-run. 
Yeah. There is a space for white people to contribute to those institutions, and indeed it's imperative that they do. But the idea that all this time down the line we can be living in white-run institutions uh, in, in, in this country is, is, is to me quite uh, astonishing. And it was for that reason that I, together with a number of my colleagues, uh, formed the Victorian Klange Group at the Johannesburg Bar to start a, a, a black-run group, uh, following in the footsteps of a couple of other black-run groups. Mm. Um, and then ultimately, a number of us, together with colleagues uh, from, from other groups, decided that there was a need to try and expand that project beyond the Johannesburg Bar and to form a new bar, which was Pabasa. Uh, and Pabasa is, uh, is, is now a still a relatively small but rapidly growing bar mm. across the country. And it says we need to have black-run institutions at the level of advocates uh, and that that's imperative for properly addressing questions like briefing patterns, for properly addressing questions like training. And Pavasa has formed the Pius Langer School uh, for the training of advocates, uh, which provides pupillage. Uh, and, and our view is that it's absolutely essential that these sorts of organizations exist in order to properly address the structural inequalities that continue to plague the legal system and the, uh, the advocates profession in, in particular. Fantastic. Let me go to that line 0861-987-000 this morning. Budibe, good morning to you. Good morning, Lukona. Good morning, Steve. Um, Lukona, I'll probably start with um, acknowledging Steve for the work that he's done um, over the years. And I think I had the first, um, when I had my first experience of Steve was in varsity. Um, and I think Steve and, and his cohort of, of debaters at the time who ran the first debating society, mm. um, you know, really managed to make the study of law, or rather the study of the, 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 the degree I was studying very boring because of how, how sharp and how brilliant they were um, in, in debating. And I need to add, um, what the stuff that Steve is doing, I think he's been doing since from day one. Um, Steve and his team also um, responsible for establishing debating in, in non, previously non-Model C schools and doing a lot of the work, you know, through Love Life at the time and getting us all involved, you know, to give us that, to give time to sort of help mm. those kids um, in those areas. So I think it's, it's quite inspiring to see that he's still doing um, that kind of stuff even today. Yeah. Um, and I'm not surprised about where he is and having been, you know, one of the people watching him from far as, as, as a, you know, young debater leading from Steve, you know, he's the one who attacked me to law. Um, and, you know, of late, I'm now trying to study law um, as a result. But that may be, I'm also interested in his views around the latest debates. I think the first being, um, what would be, what would Steve's view be on judges um, participating in, in, in public debates, um, you know, as sitting judges and what mm. the impact of that is on credibility of the law and our judicial system. And maybe also to weigh in on so-called debate that India started around the, the constitution itself. I mean, my base understanding would be that, you know, the parliament, uh, the legislation, the executive would be largely responsible for driving um, what the constitution looks mm. like or what the law of the system yeah. of the country looks like. But I'm much more interested in uh, interesting views on Absolutely. I like, I, I like Budiba, you call it the so-called debate. I think you and I are in the same <laughs> boat. Stephen, uh, you, you had the, you've earned your stripes, some good accolades. <laughs> uh, uh, some would say you have received your flowers this morning. Well, I, I really appreciate Madiba's comments, and, 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 and particularly because I, like him, I think spent more time doing debating than I did law at university. So yeah. I, I, I still love it, and, uh, and I appreciate it. Um, look, I think the, the, the question that is raised about judges being involved in public debates is a very delicate and, and tricky one. Yeah. I, I was always taught when I clerked for Chief Justice Arthur Chaskelson that judges speak through their judgments. Mm. 
And so in general, and it's in general, judges shouldn't be involved, in my view, in public debates about matters of controversy, Mm. whether it's about vaccines, whether it's about um, politics, whether it's about anything else. Judges ought to be sitting on the bench and dealing with the cases and speaking through their judgments. That said, there is one exception to that, in my view, yeah. uh, at least one, and that is where the debates concern the administration of justice. Yeah. And it is obviously important that where, for example, there is a debate about inadequate financing of the judiciary or where there is a debate about whether lockdown rules have prevented access to justice or mm. those sorts of things, those are things that sometimes need to be engaged, uh, the subject of public debate, and it's important that the judiciary be heard, mm. uh, because otherwise the debate is missing a key piece. So there are instances where judges need to engage in public debates, but they are relatively rare. And I have to say that on the question of the Landiwe Sassou... Stephen, now before you move to that, I just want to put a rider uh, on sure. Mudibe's question then. Uh, what do we make of, you know, instances where we've seen some justices, uh, uh, Justice Cameron, for example, lending their, not just only credibility, but their intellectual thought and time to certain causes uh, that are important to them, but also for society. DCJ, Dihang Musenege, on a number of platforms, particularly on the land questions. Of course, he even ventured to territory. Uh, some might argue it was a private birthday party, but ventured into territory that might have harmed his prospects of becoming chief justice. But in those instances, what would you say? Because we do have that record of judges and justices who have literally stood in very serious platforms. CJ Mukweng Mukweng denouncing political, you know, private, big private funding for politicians and political parties and so on. Well, I would say this. Uh, I, I certainly think that, for example, Justice Edwin Cameron's intervention on the HIV-AIDS question was mm-hmm. particularly important, uh, as with uh, ju- uh, Justice Mosineke's uh, intervention on some of the land issues. But I do think one needs to be careful. And in particular, I think judges need to be careful of not saying things that would mean that they have prejudged certain issues. Mm. So, for example, debates about how much funding political parties receive, that is preeminently a matter that could come before the courts. And if judges have gone out and gone out on a limb, then that can be very awkward. Mm. But that's why I was careful to say I don't think judges should be freely involved in these debates, but there are some exceptional circumstances. And I think that the HIV-AIDS one was particularly one where faced with the denialism that was prevalent in public circles, it was critically important that credible public voices were heard on that and, and, and that Justice Cameron came to the fore. Okay. So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all, yeah. but I do think that the default position should be that judges speak through their judgments and that they shouldn't be going into the public domain uh, readily. And, and I think it's really something that's dealt with in the judicial code, which deals with the sorts of statements that, public, that, that, that judges can make. And, of course, we know that in the context of Chief Justice Mokhwing, there's been the controversy yes. around Palestine. And, in fact, just yesterday he gave the apology, which was directed by the Judicial Conduct Tribunal. 2.5 um, pages and, apology. I'm not throwing you into, the, into that. No, I'm, I'm well, just... I, 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 I'm, I'm grateful. All I will say is that I think what it does demonstrate is that the, the judicial conduct process can work. Absolutely. Because, because there you have a complaint which was against the Chief Justice. It was ultimately uh, resulted in an apology one can debate whether the apology was appropriate but he reaffirms that nobody is above the rule of law That's exactly which is important point. 
That's exactly the point. Yeah. And I think that does demonstrate that, uh, that the process ultimately works. And I think that's very important and valuable. Absolutely. Now, part two of that uh, from Budibe, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, my, my, my position is this. Is, is, and, and, and the first point I want to make is I think it was not only appropriate, but absolutely essential that the judiciary came out in response to the statement by uh, Minister Sisulu and that they made a statement. And I know there's been some criticism of the fact that it yeah. was a, a public uh, broadcast rather than a statement. To, to me, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. The, the, the critical point was that the judiciary had to respond to what was really uh, some of the most, in my, in my view, quite extraordinary uh, exchanges. Uh, you know, to, to the, the, the labels that were given to black mm, judges mm. Were, were, and I think it was said in the, in, in the hearing yesterday, they were, they were offensive. Um, and for me, the point is this. Everyone is entitled to criticize the judiciary. And everyone is entitled to disagree with the judgments and criticize the way the judgments came out. That's not only permissible, it's essential in a democracy. Mm. But saying that I disagree with this judgment because it doesn't take account of X or because it's skewed in favor of Y is one thing. Calling black judges as a whole uh, extraordinarily uh, degrading names uh, is is completely different. And I think it was critical uh, that the judiciary came out and said what it did. And, and if they hadn't done so, we would have been faced with a crisis because it would have been suggested that uh, senior politicians can label judges whatever they like without any consequences at all. Um, on, the, on the point that's raised about whether the Constitution is to blame, you know, it seems to me that to blame the Constitution uh, is, is really uh, heading in the wrong direction because... Mm. If ever, uh, you know, I've looked at constitutions all over the world uh, because I'm, I tend to be a constitutional specialist. This is the most pro-transformation constitution that I have ever read. Yeah. You compare it to the Indian constitution, to African constitutions, to, uh, to, to the US, Canada. It is unashamedly and unequivocally pro-transformation and the courts have said as much. So to suggest that it's the constitution that is in the way of society transforming just makes no sense to me. You might say that people have interpreted it wrongly. I don't think they have, but that's a legitimate debate to have. But then that's the debate. You say they've misunderstood X or Y. Or you might say that government hasn't sufficiently given effect to the Constitution uh, and that, in fact, it's, it's government's failures that have produced the problems that we face. And mm. again, that's a legitimate debate. But to blame the Constitution seems to me to be aiming for the wrong target entirely because I would challenge anyone to tell me what is it in the Constitution that is holding us back. Yeah. You know, when you look at property rights in our Constitution, they are a very weak right compared to the very strong rights, uh, socioeconomic rights and others that are pro-transformation of our society. And so the, the criticism, was, in my view, uh, it doesn't really hold much water. Well, Stephen Lorato has a question on Twitter, which I think uh, in that Constitutional Court Oral History Project you participated in uh, February 2012, if you still remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you, you, you touch on this question uh, in, as you tease out the different uh, questions posed to you in that interview. He asks you, um, what is justice in your view? Sure. Um I think justice is, 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 is twofold. Justice is both procedural and substantive. One element of justice is having the right to state your case and be properly represented and having your case properly adjudicated by a court. And I, I don't think that that should be uh, undermined or overlooked. Mm. We come from a country where for many years decisions were made about people's lives by executive fiat, while the minister could decide 
where you lived, how you lived, what you did by executive fiat. And the fact that you have rights and that those rights now need to be dealt with by courts before they're taken away and that you have a right to be heard, I think is a critical component of justice. And, of course, it's got to be done properly. Mm. But, of course, procedural justice only goes so far. Justice is also substantive justice. And it means doing what's right. And doing what's right, in, in my view, and I think in the Constitution's view, means being acutely protective of and aware of the vulnerable. Because the powerful don't often need the law to protect themselves. They've got money, they've got resources, they've got abilities. Law is fundamentally about protecting the powerless, or it should be about protecting the powerless. And, you know, in the, in the original conception of constitutions, the idea was that constitutions were there as a shield to shield the public from the all-powerful government. That's, mm. why, that's why rights were what, what, what are known as vertical, which is that they protected you against the government. We're now in a very different world where corporations are immensely powerful. Uh, and that is why in more recent constitutions, including ours, we have what are known as horizontal rights, rights which apply between individuals, between individuals and corporations, between individuals and other individuals. And I think that the Constitution and justice are about protecting those who need protection, mm. protecting their ability to live and be with their families and make a living and, 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 and fundamentally about their dignity. And so when you ask what a substantive justice involves, it involves understanding, have we protected people's dignity and people's ability to live in a dignified way, in an appropriate way? Fantastic stuff. People of Power, my guest is Advocate Stephen Badlender, and we are just talking about the law and justice and, you know, practices that are inherent in that space. 0861-987-000 is the dial. Stephen, let me ask you a question before I take Sanele on the line. Uh, you know, one of the things that keep coming up in these interviews for, for Chief Justice, and of course, this time around, having so many candidates, you you really get to hear a, a, a plethora of views, and it really sends a point home about some of the problems that may be inherent in the judiciary. They are all making some uh, prognosis of the other issue over the psalm. Um, and something that Prof. Pierre de Force has once said is that we don't focus enough on you know, the politics um, in, in the judiciary, the politics in the bench, and maybe for good reason. It insulates us from certain conversations that may prove uh, per- perilous uh, for us as a society if we venture theirs. You'd see sometimes how, you know, the entire judicial system in the U.S., because of its politicization, almost seems to collapse uh, on, on society. But You've, you've, you've appeared in front of many judges, many courts, and I'm sure you talk to some. How prevalent, I mean, Judge, judge uh, De- Acting President Petze uh, uh, was very peeved with, you know, uh, J.P. Mlambo yesterday uh, on the comment of, you know, politics backstabbing and, uh, and, 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 and gossip. But it does point to a problem that exists. How bad are these uh, uh, politics, Stephen? And I, will, and I will say this in light of some people having alluded to the politics as part of them not being considered. So like uh, Judge, uh, Advocate uh, Jeremy Gauntlet, for example, even uh, when he was uh, proposed by many civil society bodies. Now, uh, uh, David Until Hunter uh, seems to <laughs> face the similar problem, and he's shortlisted again in April. How serious are judicial politics? I think we need to separate out two kinds of, of, of politics. Uh, look, uh, the, the, the first is uh, party politics. 
Mm. In other words, are judges party political? And, and I, I have never experienced that. Mm, mm, you mm, have some mm. judges who are mo more pro-intervention with d executive decisions than yes. others. You have some who are less. But it's not about a party political thing. And, mm. and, and that is a, a major difference between us and the U.S. In the U.S., depending on who's in power, you can know what causes that identify with who's going to be nominated. We know now uh, that, that, that uh, President Biden is going to nominate someone who is a liberal judge uh, on, on certain issues. If it was President Trump, it would be the opposite. Now, I think we should count ourselves lucky for all of our challenges that we're not in that world. Yeah. I agree with you completely. But I think the politics that, that you're speaking about is, is a different kind of politics. It, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a jockeying for position. Yes. And, and I'm probably not the right person to comment on how much politics there is between judges because I, I've sat as an acting judge a number of times, but I haven't seen the inside workings in that way. Now, yeah. Let me say this. In every institution I've ever sat in, there is politics. Yeah. There was politics when I was at university. There is, there is politics uh, at, at the bar, certainly uh, very much. There's politics uh, in the, the organizations I'm involved in. I think that sort of jockeying and politics is a regrettable but inevitable part of life. Mm. And I think in some institutions it's worse than others. And I think one needs to try and tamp it down and persuade people to see that there's a greater cause out there. But I think if we think that there's going to be no jockeying in politics and people trying to gain advantage for their allies over other allies in the bench, just as in every other society, every other area of society, I think we're probably being unrealistic. But Stephen, do and you think it might blur the lines between the appointers and potential, you know, which really has been part of the questions that come up, you know, the proximity that, you know, whether judges have proximity to politicians who may lobby because the president makes on a recommendation certain appointments? Look, I think we've got to be realistic. Our constitutional system for appointing judges involves a very heavy degree of politicians. Yeah. There are different, nobody I know, in very few countries in the world is the system entirely apolitical. And the reason is because you do need the judges to be credible. And that's one of the reasons mm. that the JSC originally had some politicians on it. So I'm not suggesting that the JSC should, be, should not have politicians on it. But I think there's an important debate as to whether the JSC has too many politicians relative to the number of lawyers and academics yeah. and judges it has on it. And I think there's an even more important debate about whether the kinds of questioning that go on at the JSC are appropriate. Because it's one thing to say we're going to have a body made up of politicians, lawyers, judges and academics. It's another thing to say that some members of those, that body are going to be in, allowed to engage in what appear to be uh, political attacks on judges. And, and I think that's really uh, a critical issue, and it arose in the context of a previous round of constitutional court appointments, which were set aside by mm, Catholic mm. On, the, on that very basis. And yep. the JSC conceded that they should be set aside. So I think that's the problem. Not so much whether there are politicians there. there, there will always be some politicians there, but whether there are too many politicians mm -hmm. and whether the Chief Justice or whoever's chairing the JSC has kept a sufficiently tight rein on the kinds of questions that can be posed to judicial Stephen, candidates. Stephen, let me let Sanele in on this conversation. Sanele, good morning. Good morning, Luke Hona and Steve, how are you? Good morning. Nice, nice to talk to you. All right. Uh, Steve, I heard you earlier saying that you don't believe that uh, judges should be commenting on the matters that are in public. But uh, on the other hand, don't you think that maybe we need to educate uh, 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 the, the people out there so that because at the end of the day, judges are also members of the, of the, of the society, and there might be judges today, and they, tomorrow they might be standing as, as accused. 
you understand? And judges also work with the with the evidence that is brought to to court or before court. Uh, they don't judge according to their feelings, but they judge according to the the, 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 the evidence that is that is has been brought before them. So uh, I do I, I believe that it's better uh, for judges to tell us what they think about about different things. Uh, because they're also members of the society. Okay. Their input also is, is important, I think. Sanele, got you loud and clear. Uh, Stephen, I mean, uh, it, is a, it is an interesting one. We've also spoken about what role retired judges might need to play in society, and it seems as if they have more liberty than those who are still on the bench. Yeah, look, I mean, retired judges certainly do have more liberty, and they should have more liberty, because there's less risk of them than getting involved in these debates. But, but let me be clear, I, I fully embrace the idea of judges and all lawyers being involved in a role of education of the public about what the law is, what the Constitution is, mm. and what judgments mean, because our legal system is only as strong, ultimately, as its public legitimacy. And to have law be something confined to some ivory tower and not be understood by ordinary members of the public is, is, is bad for the country and it's, it's bad for law and bad for, the, for democracy. So if the debate is should judges be engaging in explaining their judgments and elaborating on how the judicial system works, no problem at all. That's the sort of administration of justice issues that they should be engaging in. But that's quite different from freely weighing in on political or policy mm, issues, mm. which to me raises the concerns that I articulated earlier. Absolutely. Tobane on Twitter, let me squeeze in this one, says it's still proper to call people my lord, your worship, <laughs> or should we stick to your honor and justice? <laughs> Look, I, I, I think that my lord and my lady is, a, is, a, is from a bygone era, and I would welcome it if it was got rid of it. Uh, most of, many of the courts have got rid of it in, in, yeah. in, the, in the Concord and the SCA. It's, it's just Justice A and Justice B, and, and there's nothing about my lord and my lady. It's quite hard to get people to get rid of it, but I think the sooner we do, uh, I'd support that. Stephen, let me just ask you this as a parting shot before I let you off uh, to listen uh, to DCJ once more. Uh, Judge Bud Lender someday? (laughs) I'd love to serve on the bench someday. It's definitely something I'd like to do. Um, Not not yet. I got told by a judge when I was acting as a judge that I'm too young to go to the bench, and uh, I decided he was right. but, uh, But one day, definitely something I'd like to do. All the best with that, and we will certainly be watching those developments with keen interest. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for making time for us. Advocate Stephen Budlender, practicing senior counsel and member of the Pan-African Bar Association of South Africa. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.